Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the greatest podcast in American history. I'm your host Dylan Shearer. Today we're talking about the Industrial Revolution in the West. So continuing off our previous conversations on the Industrial Revolution, sort of looking at the North and the South, and now we're going out West. The West, of course, is this big, big area in the United States. So we're going to talk about what the West actually means, and then look at some of the, the stuff we've looked at before. Let's get going. So the West and the Industrial Revolution is in the West. We're talking about four major things today. One is sort of the frontier, right? This idea of the frontier, if it's really real at all, that even makes sense as an idea. We're going to talk about Western industry, right? So continuing this talk of what industries were big in these specific regions. We're going to look at manifest destiny. That sort of ties into this idea of the frontier. If manifest destiny, where it came from, if it actually, you know, is a real, could be like a a thing that is worth fighting for, that sort of stuff. And then we're talking about uh, the subjugation of the native peoples of the United States as well, right? This sort of awful, horrible murder uh, and pillage of land that was being lived on and used by Native peoples throughout this whole time. So sort of three major questions here that we're going to be looking at in this episode. One, what were sort of American cultural attitudes toward the West, right? So what do people not living in the West think of the West? And what do people living in the West think of the West? We're talking about how the Industrial Revolution shaped the American West, right? So what did that look like? How did that shaping happen? And we're going to talk about how did racism towards native populations affect the U.S.'s westward expansion, right? Often about Oftentimes, when we think of racism in the United States, it's only racism towards black people. That's not true, right? There's tremendous racism, colonialism going on in the American West uh, during this whole time. So before we get to all that stuff, though, we're we're talking about today, our, our person for today that we're talking about is this guy named Wavoka. He was a Paiute religious leader. Uh, he was one of the leaders and developers of the Ghost Dance, sort of the, the founder of the Ghost Dance. He also went by the name Jack Wilson. He preached sort of this ghost dance idea, and we'll go more into this, what what this ghost dance is a little later, but the ghost dance idea, he, he preached that the, the ghost dance, this religious practice, would bury the white man's world and bring about a new world for Indians across what was becoming the United States, right? So this sort of rebirth of, and he used the word Indian, right? The, the rebirth of this Indian world. Uh, he was heavily influenced by the Industrial Revolution and sort of the oncoming of the white settlers, right? The oncoming of these new peoples into to the West sort of pushed his own the Paiute people out of where they had been living before and forced them into these desert, dry, arid areas of the American Southwest where they could no longer sort of farm and hunt in their traditional ways. And they lost a lot of their, their land and their ability to live the way that they've been living for, for hundreds of years. He died on September 20th, 1932. So, you know, right after World War One, so lived for a long time after this. And so what a lot of people think about Wavoka, if you've sort of read anything about the ghost dance or the massacre at Wounded Knee. Sort of people at the time, white people at the time were saying that he was preaching that, you know, the, to, to, to fight and reject sort of this new industrialized world and to go back in time. But that wasn't the case. Voga really was preaching that Native peoples, Indians needed to work in this new industrialized world, not scorn it, right? That they had to work, that this stuff couldn't be changed, but it could be made to be good for them. He also called for, you know, clean living, right? So no drinking, no drugs, hard work, and cooperation with the white settlers, right, to make this new this new world for, for Native peoples all across the United States. Jack Wilson, Wavoka really had one type of ghost dance, right? 
right? There were different uh, groups across the United States practiced different versions of the ghost dance, but sort of his his ideas behind it were the main ideas. Uh, and there are still practitioners of the ghost dance today. A lot of times when we talk about Native history, it's sort of in the past, right? As if it's dead. That's very much not the case. Native history is still going on, still being made every single day day. Rovoka is still a big part of that. We'll come back to him more a little bit later when we talk about sort of the ghost dance movement, but just an introduction to him now. Okay, so we're going to talk about the frontier. This is a huge uh, idea still in American history. If you ever have, you know, the tragedy of having to read about, you know, 200 books on the, the West, you will encounter a lot of this stuff and this idea of the frontier. This one guy, people still talk about him today, Frederick Jackson Turner. Somehow this guy guy writing in 1893 is still like the guy you have to cite about the frontier. Mostly (laughs) people are generally citing him because they think he's wrong and dead wrong and just like made a bad argument, but he still gets cited. He was sort of like one of the the most well-known historians of his time. And in a speech at American Historical Association, he made a speech in 1893 at the World's Fair, I believe, that the frontier no longer existed, right? He says the frontier is dead and that we just, there's no more frontier in the United States. So the question then is what happened between the end of the Civil War in 1893 that made someone argue this, right? That the frontier no longer existed. Well, a couple of things. One, uh, sort of we get this huge expansion out west of white people, right? Coming out of the Civil War, people started moving west. We'll look at some of those programs that helped them move west, but they, they bought up huge tracts of land and killed lots of native peoples along the way and forced them out of their lands. But people started spreading, spreading farther and farther west until sort of no area was seen as no longer unoccupied, right? Truth is, of course, the frontier never really existed. People had always lived in this sort of western part of the United States, and here we're thinking of places like Colorado, like Wyoming, like Nebraska, right? People had always lived there. They just weren't white. And for a lot of white people, that meant that they didn't count. And you can look at who these people were, right? There's all these sort of maps online of the different native groups that lived in these areas and had lived in them for a very long time, working, living, doing all sorts of stuff there, just being people who they were. And the white people were like, oh, they don't really exist there. So sort of tied to this idea of the frontier. And one of the reasons why people started moving west is this idea of manifest destiny. You may have heard this term a couple of times if you know you took your AP history classes or whatever, but it was sort of an important idea going on in the, the mid to late 1800s. It was this term coined by this guy, John L. Sullivan, in 1846, where basically his the, the term that he used, it was to formulate this idea that God, sort of, you know, this white, the Christian God had destined the U.S., the United States, to control everything from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, right? This huge, huge border, John L. Sullivan's like, well, it's God wants us to, to control all of this land. It was this incredibly racist idea, right? It was this idea that the land needed to be tamed, that it was uncivilized, full of these, quote, quote unquote, sort of savage peoples, that white people were needed there to go in and sort of tame the land and actually make it useful. Obviously, that's, you know, once again, I use this word a lot in the last podcast episode, but it's bullshit. It's racist. Like I said, you know, the land was being occupied already and being used. Uh, And that sort of manifest destiny idea became incredibly popular and became sort of the leading cultural reason for colonization.
civilization in the West. There's lots of sort of famous paintings of, you know, people on the Oregon Trail and like, you know, pointing this woman, uh, Columbia, pointing the way forward, right, for U.S. civilization. So now that's sort of like one of the big cultural ideas behind it. So let's look at some of the ways the West actually was colonized, right? Because we say colonization, but what does that actually look like? It's different in every place. And there's sort of three main ways that the, the United States West was colonized. One was violence, one was farming, and the other was railroads. Railroads, once again, coming up here. So we're going to look at farming first, and then we'll go at railroads, and then we'll look at violence. So farming. So long before, as we mentioned, long before the Industrial Revolution really got kicked off and people started moving to the cities and working in factories, farming had been the main industry, not only in the West, but all of the United States. But even with the Industrial Revolution, farming continued to be sort of the main industry of white people in the West, right? That's the breadbasket of the United States. And the Industrial Revolution didn't change that, but what it did change was how farming was done. And sort of like there was three main changes to this. One was the Homestead Act. The other was industrial farming. And then finally, the introduction of what are called Bonanza Farms. So let's look at the Homestead Act. So this is one of the big ways that sort of farm farming and farms became really big in the West. This was an act passed by Congress in 1862, which was during the Civil War. And it was to sort of encourage free laborers, right? So non-enslaved people to move out West and to bring non-slave labor to the West, but also to force Native peoples off their lands, right? To take this land for white people. And what this act did was it gave 160 acres, which is a huge amount of land, right? If, even if you think of like, I, you know, where I'm looking at like housing things right now. And if you see something as like 0.6 acres of land, that's a huge amount of land to me. And this is 160 acres, right? And if you, you got that land for free, uh, if you improved the land and lived on it for five years, improved, of course, sort of a weird term. What that generally meant was you build something on it. So you build a house, build an outhouse, a storage place, right? And you'll have done it for five years and worked on it for five years. And so between, this was incredibly successful for the white people who took advantage of this, right? Remember, this land was already being used by Native peoples at the time and basically being stolen by white people. So between 1862 and 1890, 400,000 farms were created and about 2 million people lived on these farms, right? So 2 million people moving west is a lot of people for this area working on these farms. And farming 160 acres by yourself is not easy. It's very, very hard. It's a lot of land to go through and a lot of land to get planted. Even if you have a family with, you know, 12 kids who you can make do chores, still a lot of work. These new farmers were known as sod busters. One thing to know about the, the land, even in Illinois where we are, but then also places like Nebraska, in places farther west is there's lots of sod. Now this sod is really great for growing stuff, especially because a lot of it hadn't really been farmed before and sort of the way we think of as being farmed. You know, furrows cut through, rows and rows and rows and rows of crops planted. But sod is incredibly thick. It's this really thick dirt and you really, to cut it effectively, need steel plows. You need steel plows that can dig deep, deep furrows into this dirt. That's why they're known as sort of sod busters, right? So working this land was very hard. There's other things farmers had to deal with besides Besides just sort of the actual physical nature of the labor. One was dealing with locusts. There's, you, I know that sounds very biblical, but there is locust plagues all the time that would completely destroy crops. In Kansas, there was this massive grasshopper plague where just, you know, hundreds of millions of grasshoppers came in and just destroyed all the crops. They also have to deal with tornadoes. Tornadoes are a huge thing in the West, right? Chicago recently just had one touchdown on its outskirts. 
and these tornadoes you know can cause huge damages going through these fields ripping up all kinds of crops it did deal with hail and sort of all these other uh, impediments to farming wheat for example the type of wheat they were growing at first really only works in one season maybe you could get two crops out of it in a year and it wasn't until actually the mennonites from russia brought over winter wheat and they were able to sort of plant almost year-round crops and make sort of money that way and so by in the 60s 1860s it was really hard by the by the 1870s with some of these improvements from the industrial revolution things had improved the introduction of winter wheat as I mentioned, increased demand for hogs and cattle. One, that demand partly uh, grew because of industrial revolution and these new refrigerated cars, right? So people wanted uh, cheaper cheaper meat from all across the country. So farmers were able to bring up hogs and cattle and sell them in places of the country that they hadn't been able to before. Demand for corn grew partly because of the demand for cattle, right? A lot of the corn grown in the United States is not for human consumption, but for the consumption of cattle and livestock and then also and this wouldn't be at that point uh, but now it's the, the use in corn syrup so one of the big things that the industrial revolution also changed with this industrial farming is allowed for cheaper steel plows right this harder sharper steel could cut through the saw much easier than iron uh, plows so it made it made it possible basically for these farmers to to actually sort of effectively plant these 160 acres what people didn't really realize right away or maybe some people did realize but it, nothing was done about it was that this was an ecological disaster in the making right these uh, these plows are really messing up the sod one this sod sort of keeps water in place in a lot of in a lot of regions you know the the native grasses have these incredibly incredibly deep roots keeping everything there uh, but when those get cut up you get lots of runoff if you are traveling through Iowa at this point or any sort of big farming communities you can see basically what are turned into huge sort of sump drains of all this runoff there's like 10 million pounds of soil lost every year because of this and like really really good soil because they're losing the this native these native grasses that are keeping all the dirt in place right it's just really really bad for the environment these steel plows and the sort of farming techniques that they're using so the sort of the last way the industrial revolution changed the uh, sort of agriculture in the west was these bonanza farms so as farming got easier right with the introduction of steel plows introduction of winter wheat you get and higher and higher demand you get bigger companies getting involved they see the possibility for massive profits and so they want to get involved in this new agricultural out in the west so these industrial interests would buy land for cheap from these poor sod busters who couldn't make it work in the 60s who had to sell their tracts of lands and they would sell them to these, in, to these industrial interests and these industrial interests would buy these huge 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 tracts of land and create what were called bonanza farms at the times right these mega huge mega bonanza farms you know running in the the thousands of acres called factories in the fields right they made food really cheap for cities but they also paid the workers very poorly, reduced the profits of small farmers, and created more and more ecological damage, not to mention, right, taking and stealing land from native peoples in the area. So 
people in the cities were getting cheap food, but the cost of that cheap food was incredibly, incredibly high. We're looking at railroads now, right? One of those other big industries out in the West that allowed this to survive. So just like in the North, just like in the South, railroads were a huge, huge role, right? They needed to get that food from the West to these cities where these big markets were. And the goal of the railroads companies was to connect the West to the North and the South. And the big way they did that was the Transcontinental Railroad. I sort of mentioned that once already, but we'll talk about it a little more here. So it was completed in 1869, largely built built by Chinese immigrant laborers doing all this hard work. Remember, I talked about the way that they would have to build the train line around these mountains, right? Dangling off the sides of these mountains, sticking dynamite into holes and getting hauled back up, hopefully not dying or getting injured in the process. So these Chinese immigrant laborers built the whole railroad while white industrialists got rich off of it. But even even with that, these jobs were so dangerous and sort of poor paying, more and more Chinese people were immigrating to the United States, especially to California for these jobs. And as they did so, more and more white people were accusing them of stealing right jobs from white people. This is a very common accusation. You still hear this today in the United States that, you know, immigrants are stealing jobs. Obviously, that sort of messed up and there was enough jobs for everybody, but it was very very common complaint. So after the completion of the railroad network, right, because the industrialists have to get theirs, a lot of these jobs were, were sort of gone, and many railroad workers moved to cities, sort of started developing these Chinatowns. And when that happened, you saw increased violence in these cities, racial animosity towards these new immigrants living in the cities. And Californians, in response to this, pushed Congress to restrict Chinese immigration. And in 1882, as a response to that push, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. This was important. This was sort of the first official immigration act, right? Prior to this, anyone really had been able to immigrate to the United States. But it wasn't until 1882 that you saw restrictions against other people coming to the United States. The Exclusion Act banned immigration from China and it said that current Chinese citizens could not become citizens, right? So it made it impossible for current immigrants to become citizens as well. There are sort of exceptions, right? Rich Chinese immigrants could become citizens. They said to, you know, pay a little more. So obviously still very much a class nature to this. And as I mentioned, this was sort of the first time that the U.S.'s longstanding open door immigration policy had been curbed. And basically it was curbed because of racism, right? You see, you know, people from Europe coming in, even the parts of Europe, quote unquote, that people thought were bad, right? Southern and Eastern Europe, no exclusions when millions and millions of people from those countries were coming in. But when Chinese immigrants start coming in, then you get the actual sort of curbing of immigration from these countries. And this Chinese Exclusion Act would last until 1943, right? So a very long time. So more on these railroads. So what do the railroads do? Well, one, as I mentioned, they allowed goods to travel from one part of the country to the other very quickly. Chicago actually became the railroad hub of the United States. Basically, every line from the east started in Chicago, ended in Chicago, and every line going out west ended in Chicago, right? So if you wanted to send something from New York to, say, San Francisco, you sent it through Chicago. Became this massive railroad hub. And if you look at sort of a map, a railroad map of the time, you can see that, right? All these lines go up 
into Chicago. He's starting in Florida, starting in Texas or whatever. They all go up into Chicago. At one point, it was actually cheaper to get meat sort of made in San Francisco. It was cheaper to get it shipped from Chicago than it would be to get it shipped from Las Vegas, even though Las Vegas is much, much closer than Chicago, right? That's just how big Chicago was as a railroad hub of the United States. Railroads were given about 223 million acres by Congress out west. They these That's one of the big ways that the owners of these railroad companies got rich. They didn't need those millions of acres to build the railroads, right? Railroads are very skinny. They don't need that much land. And so they would sell the land to developers, to other to farmers, all these sorts of people and get really rich off those land sales. sales. Not to mention, you know, ticket fees and all this stuff from the railroads. Rail, a railroad coming to your city could destroy a new town, could create new towns, right? It was the lifeblood of a lot of cities if they got a railroad line or if the railroad line left and the country became, then the city became sort of a ghost town, right? You couldn't get enough food, you couldn't get enough goods, so no one wanted to live there anymore if the railroad left. Railroads also changed the cattle industry. This is sort of the time there's like a, well, it sort of helped develop the, the cattle industry and created the cowboy. So this era, right, the cowboy era is sort of huge in the United States mythos. Everyone thinks of, you know, the wild, wild west, all this sort of stuff. It really was just about a 20-year period, from 1860 to the late 1880s. They, the, the cowboys, what their job was, was they would take cattle from ranches down in Texas, down in Oklahoma, and then take them up to railroads and railroad lines farther up north, right, to these, to these big sort of depots. Oftentimes, it would end in Abilene, Kansas was, was a big stop, and then other sort of train stops. What destroyed that was barbed wire and refrigerated rail cars, basically. Barbed wire allowed ranch owners, these farm owners, to basically stop cowboys from bringing the cows across their land, right? They couldn't go, the cows couldn't go through this barbed wire. You know, if it, prior to that, fences had been made with just wood or with just regular old, you know, wire and cows could just go right through that, trample through the land. Obviously, farmers didn't like that. And so with the invention of barbed wire, cheap barbed wire, they're able to stop these cows from coming through their land. And then also you get refrigerated cars. So no longer do cows need to be slaughtered in places like Chicago or Abilene, Texas, so the meat can be fresh when it's shipped. It can They can be slaughtered right on the farm and then shipped on a refrigerated car to wherever it's going. So it basically destroyed the cowboys. Uh, beef became very cheap because of this, allowing Americans, a lot of Americans, great access to, to protein, right? This is protein, beef especially, was much, much cheaper in the United States than it was anywhere else in the world. World during this time. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why Americans love burgers so much and almost no other country in the world loves burgers as much as we do because of this sort of very cheap access to beef. It was also a huge ecological disaster. Cow farming is really, really bad on the environment and it takes up a lot of sort of resources that could be used for other things is spent on this sort of beef demo and they require a lot of water. They require a lot of food and it's really damaging on the environment. Cows sort of, you know, can just trample over everything. One interesting thing to note about cowboys, sort of in the general, like, you know, when you look at sort of cultural artifacts about cowboys, movies, TV shows, books, they're often all white. That wasn't the case. Most cowboys were either black or Hispanic. It was a very dangerous, dirty job. You're on your feet or on a horseback for days at a time, right? You're sleeping outside. You're eating sort of awful food. You're getting bit by gnats, by bugs. You're getting attacked by wolves, maybe. Awful, dangerous 
this job paid very poorly. So a lot of white people thought it was beneath them, actually. So most cowboys were either Hispanic or black at the time. And you don't really see that a lot in popular culture. Another thing that railroads did was help develop the mining industry in the United States. They allowed for the cheaper transport of things like gold, silver, and then also copper and coal, right? Sort of more industrial metals, things used for processing and manufacturing. You don't really, this isn't really a time where you see individual prospectors getting rich anymore, right? You know, those sort of 49ers, the old hayseeds with the hat being like, you know, gee whiz, I found myself a, a thing of gold, right? That doesn't really happen anymore. Now it's this big and industrial mining going on requires these huge, huge investments of capital. You have to get machinery and labor, you know, clear cut forests where you find a gold vein or a silver vein or whatever, and dig these deep mines to extract these metals. Pretty much all this mining was done in places like Colorado, Idaho, and Utah. And it was all controlled by sort of bankers and other rich, you know, politicians, sort of those industrial concerns, right? It wasn't individual miners getting rich off, you know, striking a load anymore. Mining also, as we know, incredibly, incredibly harmful to the environment. If you ever go to a place, uh, like there's lots of places in Montana that are what are now called super fun sites, which are basically just these giant sort of slag piles where mining used to happen. It's just really, really bad for the, for the environment. There's places in Montana where, you know, these huge pools of sort of heavy metal runoff, industrial runoff from these mining concerns. And if a bird sort of flies down and lands in it, they're dead the next day. Uh, it's just incredibly, incredibly toxic. A lot of these mines had to clear cut forests, especially out in like places like Idaho, use these huge, massive clear cut zones so they can dig down. It's also a dangerous job. You know, people die when mines collapse, people die when uh, noxious gases get released. You get cases of the black lung, right? All this stuff. It's incredibly dangerous industry. But sort of the growth of the West also comes with the growth of new cities, right? As we see in the, the East and, and the North, the North and the South. Uh, new cities develop because of an industry or get bigger. So the, the confluence of all this growth of farming, railroads, mining, and cattle allows for the growth of new cities across the West. Uh, places like Chicago benefit greatly from these. And then you also get places like Dodge City, Kansas City, Dallas, Boise, uh, and other places all sort of grow up because of this massive expansion West. So those of, you know, railroads, these sort of ideas of manifest destiny, farming, all this stuff grows the West, but what really grows the West the most and what allows all these things to happen is violence. So none of this stuff could have been done without the subjugation of Native peoples living out West, right? This, this was their land. They were the ones who were living on it. They were the ones who were working on it, had connections to this, these places going back generations. And it was a sort of a continuation of the policies that had already killed millions of Native peoples in the East, in the South, and they, those policies were just continued out west, right? Already, Native peoples had been kicked out with people like Andrew Jackson forced to move across the lands into places like the Oklahoma Territory and Kansas. And so now they're being even forced off of those lands that had already been, that were already new to them. So the Civil War, one thing to know about the, the Civil War in the West, right? The Civil War was fought in the West. It was often used as an excuse to massacre Native groups, right? It wasn't just sort of fighting of the Civil War between the North the Confederacy and the U. 
Union, it was also used as an excuse to kill Native peoples. So one of the, the big sort of forms of violence out West is what is known as the, quote, Indian Wars at the time. And this was sort of continued from the Civil War termination policies, right? After the Civil War was over, the, the Union still was fighting out West, but it, it, turns as a it turned its attentions even more to Native peoples. And the U.S. government at the time referred to them as the Indian Wars. And these were sort of the results of the land grab and the Homestead Act, right? Native peoples were clashing with these white settlers saying, you know, you can't just live on this land. This is our land. And these, these conflicts turned violent. Uh, the army was often called in by the settlers and massacred entire tribes, entire groups of people. The, the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864 is one example of this. Before it happened, there's something called the Camp Weld Conference, which is trying to negotiate peace with the sort of the Cheyenne Chief, Black Kettle, the Sand Creek Massacre. The reason that there were white people there in general in the first place is because gold had been discovered in Colorado. And after that sort of conference failed to, to try to negotiate peace to keep these, you know, gold miners off their land, 675 men in the 3rd Colorado Calvary under the command of this guy, Colonel John Chivington, attacked and destroyed a village of Cheyenne and Arapaho people in that south southeastern Colorado territory, killing or mutilating between 69 to over 600 native peoples in that village. Chivington claimed that there was five to 600 warriors killed. Most other sources estimate around 150, about two-thirds of them women and children. There's congressional investigation of this, sort of like one of the one of the the guys there, John S. Smith, who was quoted in there, and this is sort of a really intense quote. Uh, but I'm going to read this here just to show you how awful this violence was. He said, "I saw the bodies of those lying there, cut all to pieces, worse mutilated than any I ever saw before. The women cut all to pieces." Goes on and on and on. Sort of, and he ends it by, "Whom were they mutilated by? The United States troops, right? So these these white people were coming in to find gold." People were already living there. Cheyenne, Arapaho people were already living there. But because they refused to give up that land, the U.S. Army came in and massacred them. And the, things like this happened over and over and over again during this period. It's, you know, it's almost offensive to call it a war when you have these massacres. Uh, in the U.S., right, it wasn't just sort of about gold. Also, racism was sort of heavily involved in this. General William Tecumseh Sherman, the guy who I talked about before, who led that sort of march to the sea during the Confederate War, was still a general in the U.S. Army and participated in these Indian Wars. He called for the extermination of all Sioux people, right? And sort of just horrible, horrible guy, awful messed up grand other government leaders started what they call the peace policy right they wanted to put this name on it you know this idea of conquest through kindness i don't know how conquest can ever be kind or peaceful but that's sort of the u.s army for you and part of this policy was to create the the reservation system in the west right forcing native peoples to give up their ways of life at gunpoint forcing them into these smaller and smaller areas of land forcing them to you know privately use the land right so uh, you know each person on a reservation gets a certain amount of acres and they have to farm it completely sort of against the way of life many other white settlers sort of continued the policies of the u.s army massacring these native groups often as i mentioned with the not only implicit but explicit support of the government get more discovery of gold in places like the black hills which leads to people like general custer leading attacks against the sioux in the black hills trying to get this gold uh we do know that custer 
Custer was defeated, right? The Battle of the Greasy Grass, also known as Little Bighorn. That victory was sort of short-lived for Sitting Bull and the Sioux. The U.S. government came in, right, and would eventually sort of defeat them in force, force them off their lands, but they, they did have some victories. Other sort of acts that were not sort of explicitly military were things like the Dawes Act. They There were sort of large reservations out west, and U.S. politicians wanted that land, wanted to get rid of those large reservations, so they passed the Dawes Act. They wanted to get rid of these reservations largely because they blocked the building of railroads. Some There was some criticism of these reservations on sort of humanitarian grounds, saying that they weren't great places to live, but that was sort of often very patronizing and racist uh, humanitarian ideas, right? Rather than sort of a real humanitarian support for them. So in 1887, the Dawes General Allotment Act, if you want the full name, was passed. If you're listening to this, and I'm from Evanston, Dawes Elementary School is named after this guy. Uh, so it declared that lands held by Indian nations needed to be divided up into private property, right? So forcing Native people to, to move away from this communal lifestyle into this more individual capitalist way of living. But this sort of Dawes Act was sort of massive fraud, massive coercion, bad farming conditions meant by that 1935 two-thirds of that land that had been sort of given to individuals was in the hands of white people, right? So Native peoples no longer even own the land they had been forced onto by the U.S. government, having to give those up to these new Bonanza farms and other white farmers. An incredibly sort of horrendous loss of land and rights in the West. You also get this idea that comes largely from Manifest Destiny of civilizing, right? These reformers wanted to quote-unquote civilize Native Americans which just meant make them more white. One of the big ways this was done was through what are called boarding schools. These were the horrible, horrible places. This happened in Canada too. It wasn't just the United States. But these native children were forced to to leave their homes, leave their families, give up their names, wear quote-unquote proper clothes, and go to these schools to learn how to be white, essentially. These schools were horrible places of sexual abuse, death, and violence. Canada right now is still are is discovering sort of mass graves of children outside of these schools. It's just awful, awful story because there's almost no oversight from them. And so they forced, you know, religion, forced Christianity upon these attendees in the name of civilizing. It's incredibly awful. You also get massive amounts of environmental destruction at the time. The bison population in particular has sort of almost been exterminated at this point, destroying sort of one of the main parts of Plains Indian life, right? Buffalo was a tremendously important part of not only their cultural life, but also just as a food source, as a source for other goods. In 1891, there were only 865 bison left in the United States. In 1865, there were 13 million bison, right? So think of that. In under 30 years, you go from 13 million bison to 865 bison. That's horrible. And that's all because of just hunting, sort of shooting these bison and killing them by the people would go onto trains on these hunting trips. The train would go past these bison fields and people would just shoot them with guns over and over and over and over and over again. And oftentimes just leave them to rot in the fields. Demand for bison was... Bison extermination happened in part because they wanted to 
destroy the way the the lives of these native peoples to kick them off these lands there's also bison fur became hugely popular at this time there's a big demand for it in fashion but these two things basically exterminated the bison population at the time bison population is now back up in the united states weirdly thanks to the efforts of ted turner like the cnn guy and other people sort of pushing back against this and keeping bison alive so the population is rising again but they were almost extinct at one point uh starvation and sickness were also rampant across reservations no longer could they sort of hunt and and farm in the ways that they had before because of these losses of lands because of the loss of old hunting grounds and you do get leaders like chief joseph of the nez pierce sitting bold trying to fight back as i mentioned in the battle of greasy grass right but they were often destroyed in the process the u.s military was uh, a lot bigger uh, than these native groups at the time one of the the big sort of most known incidences of violence out west was wounded knee right you get this ghost dance as a way of resisting the the westward expansion of the uh, the U.S. Um, we talked about Wovoka already. Ghost dance. The ghost dance spread very, very quickly, right? And the U.S. government was not only was the U.S. government sort of really racist about uh, Native peoples, they also didn't really know that much about them. They couldn't sort of fathom why this ghost dance was spreading so fast. Most of the reason for that was because they sort of thought Native peoples just stayed on their reservations constantly. That's not true, right? People had friends and they knew people all across the reservations in the West and they would travel to them and that's how this ghost dance spread, right? It's through people just visiting people that they knew. But the U.S. government was very worried by this ghost Stance, right? They thought that it was going to be this massive armed resistance, that there's going to be this re- revolt, this uprising. And sort of what kicked off Wounded Knee was that they attempted to arrest a Sioux Indian man who was a leader in the ghost dance movement. And this sort of ended in the death of Sitting Bull, right? The, the arrest caused a lot of people to, to rise up. Tensions were at an all-time high. On December 29th, 1890, the U.S. Army massacred 146 Sioux people, including women and children, and at what is now called the Wounded Knee Massacre. This really marked the end of what the U.S. called the Indian Wars. You, This is really the end of massive, big, violent resistance to U.S. control and policy. It's not the end of resistance at all to U.S. expansion westward, but it sort of marked the, the, the last big military, uh, combined military pushes against the U.S. at the time. Obviously, as I mentioned before, Native history didn't end here. In a lot of history books, this is basically the end of native history you don't hear about them again uh at all in the in history books that's not the case native peoples continued to resist continued to uh sort of fight for their own ways of life all throughout the united states over and over and over again after the wounded knee massacre occurred so industrial revolution in the west sort of some conclusions here one industrial revolution threatened and destroyed a lot of what remained of traditional native ways of life it could never completely do that but it sort of made it a lot harder uh, to to live in the traditional native ways and ways that hadn't been before 
you get sort of these farming, mining, railroad, cattle industries changing the West forever, completely changing what it looks like economically and environmentally. Uh, and sort of the two big reasons for this were racism and money, right? This idea that Native peoples needed to be civilized, that sort of white Christians had a right, had a destiny to control all this land, and then also the the ever, you know, enthralling prospect of massive riches, right? These railroads being built, these huge amounts of land people saw as ripe for, for taking and using uh, for their own purposes. So that's today's episode. Uh, be sure to tell your friends about this podcast, spread the news, you know, share it wherever you can. Be sure to subscribe to Dang Dude What the Heck to get more episodes and have a great rest of your day.